I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Army Major General Chris Donahue, commander of the 82nd Airborne Division. Now, General Donahue has had a fascinating career with almost 30 years of service in the Army. And ever since he was a captain, he's deployed to either Afghanistan or Iraq. So he leads with a lot of experience in war zones under his belt. And he served in the 75th Ranger Regiment, and he led in multiple positions all the way up to brigade commander within U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I first met him when I was a field grade in the 4th Infantry Division, and he was the deputy commanding general. And then I got the opportunity to work with him years later in Afghanistan, when he was the commander of Special Operations Joint Task Force Afghanistan. So I've been looking forward to the opportunity for a very long time to pick his brain on leadership. Now, one of the topics I'm always interested in is organizational culture. So in this episode, we spend a lot of time talking about culture, and he shares his approach to cultivating a very specific type of culture within the 82nd Airborne Division. He also shares a lot of lessons learned on leading change. We talk about his greatest challenge to date as a division commander. We talk about what he's reading and why now is the time to serve in the 82nd. So this episode is packed full of lessons by a very dynamic military leader. So please welcome to the show, Major General Chris Donahue. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I love your podcast. I mean, it is a great, great source for everyone, professional and personal development. So uh, again, honored to be here today. Thanks, sir. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Looking forward to the conversation. So to get the ball rolling with questions, why did you join the military and what is keeping you here today? So the first part is what keeps me, and I think probably most people in the military, is very easy. People and mission. Everywhere I've ever been in the military, the people have been absolutely amazing in my current job. I mean, if you think about it, we have a bunch of people in this division who the vast majority don't really want to jump out of an airplane, but they do it all the time. They have no idea who packed their parachute. They have no idea who that jump master is. 
and they're willing to go anywhere in the world and take care of each other. It is absolutely amazing. Jump into the unknown. It's always been about the people. And the next thing is, I think the thing that really even makes it that much more special is the mission. You know, anywhere you've been, it's been about the mission. And uh, those two factors just, I think, drive a desire for probably everything we're going to talk about today. I am a little worried as we kind of continue through, you know, a lot of people have joined or stayed in the military because they were deploying so much. So I think, you know, we're an army in transition. We're going to have to figure out how we retain this top talent when they're not doing all the things that they probably have joined to do. Sir, let's talk about that a bit before we continue on with your career. I mean, you talk about retaining top talent in the military, not not deploying anymore. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you go about doing that? I think the biggest thing we have to do is we have to make sure that people understand why they're in the military and the importance of being in the military and in an importance of how we have to transform. I would tell you, like we talked about, the Army and our military is in transition right now. We're trying to figure out, you know, the chief staff of the Army would call it speed, range, convergence. But we're at a point where how we fight is going to change dramatically. And our adversaries across the board, they are developing new new methods, and we have to develop new methods and uh, I, I think that right now, for people who stay in, we need the most innovative, creative leaders and subordinates that we can get and develop right now. And, oh, by the way, you still have to master the basics. If you can't do the basics, you can't do everything else. And I just think right now, just where this Army is, it is a critical time. And if we don't have the right talent, you know, we, we will never fail. I know that. But we need to we need to create an army and a military, a joint force that is absolutely beyond pale of anything our adversaries can develop. Get back to true deterrence. And speaking of talent, you know, you have a, a long background in special operations where you've worked with a lot of talented folks. What what has that experience taught you that you've been able to carry forward into the, the current assignment you're in now? So I think anyone who comes from, you know, places you and I have been, Joe, is that it is absolutely you need the right people, not always the best people, the right people. And bigger isn't always better. There is a certain amount of size and scale that is extremely important. Okay, I mean, the 82nd Airborne Division in particular can do things that the Ranger Regiment, other soft organizations can't do just because of size and capability. But I will tell you, in this division, we need the right people to do everything that we do every day. And, I, and by the way, we have the right people. Yes, sir. So shifting focus a little bit, you have a reputation for, for leading change. And I, I'd like to share a quick story for our listeners. Uh, we served together in Afghanistan, and I remember you had just taken command of NATO's special operations forces in Afghanistan, in SOC Alpha. And there was a lot of talk about when was the right time to move the headquarters. And people were saying, ah, it's going to take months. And I felt like you just jumped in the seat and you literally took your laptop, moved it from one location to the new location. And then all of a sudden the headquarters just built itself around you. And so I think there was like, oh, it's going to take months. I think it literally took like a week and a half, a couple weeks for you to make that transition. So what's your take, sir, on change in organizations 
you know, at the individual level and at the organizational level? The first thing is, is um, I think, you know, my generation, you know, all of this, whatever you want to call it, GWAT, et cetera, started when I was a captain. So you now have a generation of leaders, and I've deployed to combat at every rank from captain to two-star general. So the first thing is, is you now have a group of people that have a lot of experience from that. The number one thing, Clausewitz calls it interaction. You have to change faster than your adversaries, or you will either lose or you will elongate wars that you should not. So the importance of, and I know for a fact, you know, when General Votel was on, whenever General Miller was on, I think he had General McChrystal. I didn't listen to any of their podcasts, okay? Well, I did that part off. <laughs> the, uh, no, I don't think I'm you should. Kidding. The reason is, is that I grew up underneath those guys. They're all incredible leaders. I know for a fact, each and every one of them talking about understand your environment. I know for a fact. I don't know how they phrased it, but I know for a fact they did. So number one, understand your environment, understand what you're truly capable of doing, and then know exactly where you're trying to get. What is the end in mind? We knew the exact end in mind. And then an incredible team planned it. We proposed that to General Miller. We knew exactly where we need to be arrayed. We knew exactly where we need to have our mission command nodes. And we knew where we had to get to. And we executed it right away because we understood the environment needed very rapid change. Rapid change isn't always good. But in that case, we had to do it to get where ultimately General Miller needed us to be to accomplish his campaign objectives. And I know for me personally, one of the things that I've struggled with, you know, is, is change, like just individual change. Like I will always come up with excuses to, to why I can't change. And so that's definitely something that I have fought over the course of my career is to push past the resistance. But why, why do you think at organizational level leaders battle such resistance when it comes to change? Uh, number one, it's hard. Number two, it's always a leap of faith. That's why you have to understand and know where you want to get. And then you have to be relentless in pursuing it. But most importantly, you have to go around and you have to communicate to everybody, your bosses, your peers, most importantly, your subordinates, the why. And make sure they understand where they got to get to and why it's so important. By the way, that helps you get there, okay, because they then buy in and they get it. And in fact, they will come up with better solutions than you will every time. Just empower your subordinates, inform them, and tell them exactly what your expectations are. They will far surpass anything you ever want them to do. So that, that leads into a, a great discussion on culture. Because what you're talking about right now is informing a culture that, that is able to change. So how do you define culture and what role do you see it playing in organizations? So the first thing is, I think, as a leader of any organization, you have two responsibilities when it comes to this. You set the culture, okay? In this division, you know, in many places I've been, we come up with a document of who we are. That is the document that sets our culture. And the important thing to remember about culture is, culture is what you do every day. It's not a sign. It's not a slogan. It's actually what you do every day. And you have to fight for your culture every day. And if you don't do that, you'll never set the culture that you're trying to achieve. And it's a journey. And your culture should never change. Okay, it should never change. You should have it set and know what it is. The conditions may change. 
you may have to change your approach, but your culture should never change. And then you have a process. A process is how you actually make that culture real. So in this division, we know exactly what we have to do. But the operational readiness cycle is our process to ensure that we can actually live that culture. Okay, so it's, it goes hand in hand. And everywhere you go, and you grew up in an environment, and I grew up in an environment where that was pretty easy to do because it was sort of baked into it. And now as the Army looks forward, you look at rearm when you're a squadron commander. You're the, you know, the armored cavalry regiment that you'll be part of, you will move to this rearm model. That's really what we're talking about. So what is the culture of your squadron? How does that fit into that rearm process so that you can live both? Because ha- it has to be real. Well, you mentioned the document in the 82nd that, that you have. For listeners that aren't familiar with it, because there's been very few organizations that, that I've seen that actually writes down who we are. Could you talk a little bit about that document and some of the stuff that, that you wrote in it? That document really, again, that's what establishes our culture. Okay. And, uh, you know, I can quote most of this almost verbatim. I do have a copy of it in front of me. But um, it, it's about establishing exactly who each and every one of us are in the 82nd Airborne Division, what our culture and what our expectations are of everybody that's a member of this organization. And then it also lays out where we're headed. So, you know, in there, we we just talk about, again, our people are a national treasure. I mentioned that earlier about what they're willing to do. We talk about how we treat each other, okay? As, as, you know, if a paratrooper is being attacked, harassed, using drugs, discriminated against, or facing prejudice, we demonstrate the courage to take action. We do not tolerate fratricide in our LGOP. I mean, those are the basic things. But then we also talk about how we're transforming the division, how we have to be ready to go anywhere in 18 hours, how we're going to do that. So it lays it all out so that everybody knows the exact expectations every day of what we do. So I know in preparation for command, I've, I've talked to a lot of commanders and people write statements like this out. Then they just leave it on a bulletin board somewhere in the headquarters. Like, wh- What do you do as a commander to make sure that who we are just isn't a, a, a piece of paper on the a bulletin board or a document on the 82nd Airborne Division's website? So the first thing is that I tell everybody that I rate or senior rate, I will determine your potential to serve in the United States Army based off of how well you inculcate who we are and how well you implement the operational readiness cycle. Because those are the two key things that we can do to make sure that we are taking care of our people and ensuring that uh, they are prepared to go to combat anywhere in the world, fight, win, and survive. So again, people, and then our moral obligation to make sure that they can fight, win, and survive in combat, both of those two things. And specifically, we talk about in here, we have two moral responsibilities. Prepare our our paratroopers and families to ensure we can fight, win, and survive in combat, and care for this group like they are our own family. That, that is the essence of, of the Army. That is the essence of this division. And then it goes through, and you know, again, in one page of exactly what we mean by that. But holding leaders accountable for their ability to do those two things. And then I talk about it all the time. I mean, if you were to hit up, you know, my right-hand man, Captain David Matthews, or anybody else, I talk about who we are every hour. Because you have to fight for your culture every day. We're an army in transition. This is what we have to instill in everybody. 
I remember one time, uh, I think I, I heard General Miller say that when you hear your subordinate leaders, your subordinate commanders talking about your priorities, that's when you know that your priorities are now their priorities and, and get that organizational alignment. Are, are you finding that throughout the division? Absolutely. And General Miller, General Votel, General Thomas, I know for a fact I've talked to these three about this specifically. It's not only that, okay? It's it's not when they're talking about your priorities. It's when they care about those priorities more than you do. That's when you know you've truly instilled it. When you're down there and you're talking to them and their passion, their understanding, their what they are doing far exceeds what you initially thought. That's when you know you've got your culture right. Again, they care more than you do. That's when it's exactly where you need it to be. I think another thing with that is that I've I've heard a lot of people, you know, they'll say, "Well, I don't want to I don't want to sound like like a broken record. I don't want to keep saying this the same things over again." But but in your experience, like that that's important, correct? Not only is that important, you know, when when the army sent me up to uh, Boston to go through the fellowship for the war college. You know, I knew we had to transform where I was going to be an 06 commander. So I went out and there was a guy named Bruce Harold. Bruce Harold is one of the, he just, he literally just retired as the uh, president of Iowa university and the, and their programs. He was the sort of the brain behind transforming IBM. And, uh, he brought in all of his old bosses, Lukers, all these other guys. And the one consistent thing they all told me, okay, and Lou, who was the guy in charge of IBM and their big transformation back, he told me, he goes, you need to go out and communicate to people about whatever you're trying to accomplish, culture, you know, all these other things that we were talking about. He said, you need to communicate it so often. And he was a pretty gruff guy. He's still, he's still around. But he said, you, whenever you're about ready to vomit because you've said something so often in the back of your throat and you're so tired of saying it, he said, you're only halfway there. You have to communicate this all the time. So important. When you're talking about who we are, you, you talked about getting it out there to the leaders. You talked about over communicating it. Um, but I know a lot of times in organizations, I feel like we play a game of telephone where we, we say something to those around us, and by the time it gets down to the lowest levels, it's a completely different message. So how do you overcome that at, at the division level? We talked about how we hold all of our leaders accountable for the process, operational readiness cycle, and who we are. So how do I know that that's permeating? The first thing is, is I'm constantly communicating with our battalion commanders, okay? Never enough, but constantly communicating to them about the importance of this. And oh, by the way, like I mentioned, their potential in the military will be judged off of how well they inculcate who we are and they do that operational readiness cycle to give our people that predictability to make sure that we're taking care of families and to make sure that they're, everyone is prepared to fight, win, and survive in combat. That is their job. There's many ways of making sure that happens. One of the ways I do is every week I pick a battalion and in that battalion, I do PT with a squad, the company commander, battery commander, troop commander, who we you know, whatever type of formation that is, and their chain of command is present. And we do PT with them. And we talk about who we are. I get to see how well they're actually doing PT, right? PT is very important. That's where you prepare for combat. 
You get to see, do people have a coherent plan? Can they plan? Everything we do is planning. The next thing is, is I get to know, I get to know how well they know each other, which is part of who we are. And the last thing is we build resilience. This is a tough business. So we make sure it's very demanding PT. So I'll, I'll do it with two different squads. And then that Friday, I do PT with that battalion top five. And we talk about the same things. And I get to give them feedback on what I'm seeing at their lowest levels. But I start off with, I ask them questions about what is in who we are. Now, they all know I'm going to do that. It's a forcing function to penetrate. And I get to see. And at the end, all we do is we ask questions. They ask questions of me and the division CSM. And we get that instantaneous feedback. But it's a two-way firefight, right? They get to ask us questions. We get to ask them questions. So that's, that's one way. And then, you know, I talked about process. During our semi-annual training briefs, whenever we go down to company training meetings, battalion training meetings, battalion events, we're constantly communicating. Tell me, what is the process that you're doing to make sure that who we are is penetrating? What is the process with which I know that you're implementing the operational readiness cycle, your battle rhythm, right? Within an operational readiness cycle, P1, P2, P3, P4 weeks. What is your process? All that comes together to make sure that You know, as an army, we never, ever should have had anyone tell us people are the priority. They've always been the priority, right? And that is the United States Army right there. In in addition to crafting the culture, which I would argue is a a challenge in itself, because you're literally taking a ship and, and, and making it, you know, putting it in a different direction. What is the greatest challenge that you have faced so far in your first year as a division commander? Um, well, let's talk one about getting the culture. So it is permeating down to the lowest levels. Okay. That is, so we talked about accountability, right? So as I go around, I talk about this all the time. Now, the greatest challenge I've had without a doubt in command was when COVID happened, right? Across society, across all the military services, and then specific this organization, suicides increased, right? And for all the reasons we know, one is too many. Um, And two days before I took command, uh, you know, great American took their life in this division. And I very specifically told people, this is a pretty big hole in my swing. I had never been around anyone who has gotten to such a spot, right? It's one of, it's one of our subordinates, one of my paratroopers, right? So very, very personal. But what were we going to do about it, right? We, we run from no problem. So we tore that apart and looked at everything we could. You know, clearly the rest of the Army leadership was focused on it. We went in and we, we went back and looked at surveys. We looked at all the data of the last three years, which were about you know, we thought on par with what was going through and looked through and said, what are the reasons why people are doing this? And we came up with the two main factors and then what contributes to those factors. And we went after that, right? And we talk about it all the time. And we're, we're on a good, a good trend, but it, just like culture, we have to stay on top of this. Um, and again, we're in a pretty good spot right now, but again, one is too many. We owe it to our people. Our people are a national treasure. We've got to take great care of them. 
what is that experience? You know, you said you came in, it was a hole in your swing. You had to rely on others to, to, to figure out how to, how to solve this one. What, what were some of the things that you learned from that experience? So I guess the first thing is, I think what we've all learned through COVID, you have to be present. Okay. You cannot do things remotely. Once you've established things, once you have a plan in place, everything else, the importance of getting back together and seeing people face to face is extremely important. Doesn't mean you can't do, I mean, you know me well enough. I love distributed. I love technology, everything else. But at the end of the day, you have to be present and you have to know your people. Okay. We know that. That's a fundamental basic. And I think through, through COVID, we saw that. Um, so that, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is our ability to, you know, the army uses the term see ourselves. That's data. Okay. Our ability to have the right data and to actually be able to access it and understand it, we've got to move further and faster. Just going back three years and trying to understand why people were getting to a spot where they would, you know, take their lives. I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, a pretty big step there for anyone. So what was, what was contributing to all these great people doing that? Just making sure our data was straight, right? And then just reminding people, man, this is an intensely human endeavor. You know, understand, have empathy, get, get with your people, okay? And by the way, no one was messing this up. It was just the, the conditions were such that, man, we really had to do it. Just look at our third brigade deployed to Afghanistan, they were out there with me. In fact, uh, you know, a bunch of them worked directly for me. They went through a lot, okay, um, to set the conditions to accomplish what General Miller uh, needed us to do to get to that point to negotiate with the Taliban. It was a very, very kinetic fight, as you remember, okay. So they saw a lot. And then they came directly home and immediately went into isolation. Then they couldn't go on block leave. And again, no one could change that. That's just, we were in the middle of a pandemic. So to watch what that brigade went through, okay, and then watch the leaders and all of us try to figure this out while, while balancing all that, you know, those guys and gals went through a lot. But the leaders did, you know, as we identified things and were changing stuff, pretty, pretty remarkable. So, you know, I could go kind of on and on this topic, but I don't want to, I don't want to time thief your podcast. <laughs> uh, these are, these are great lessons, sir. I remember when I graduated college and I was finally done with, with anything remotely related to academics because Iraq and, and Afghanistan, the two wars had just kicked off. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, like war fighting is kinetic. It's not as much, uh, you know, thinking it's more doing. And so I was so happy to leave books behind, but I quickly realized that that, that wasn't, that wasn't a thing like uh, great leaders in the military continue to self-develop, continue to read. And, um, you know, just sitting in your office right now, you know, I, I see books on your shelf. I see books, uh, books on your desk. And I'm pretty sure you took a couple of mine uh, when, when we were together in Afghanistan. I may have stole several you, books. You did, sir. I, I, I think I still have. I actually came by here <laughs> just to get those books back. But That's why we hired you, actually, so that you could actually <laughs> take the books back. Or I could steal more for it. So what I want to know is a couple of things is how has, has reading impacted you throughout your career? It's not just reading. Okay. It's also making sure you understand your environment. 
But again, it's understanding what you need to read and when you need to read it because you only have so much time. But also, where do you go and visit? Okay, battlefield circulation, right? I think, you know, having watched a bunch of different leaders do battlefield circulation, you know, the one thing that I took away from it, it's just not to go out and visit with people. You have to have an end in mind. I'm going to go out and I need to answer these questions. This is why I'm going out to do battlefield circulation. doesn't matter what level you're at, platoon leader to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And then what are you doing to prepare yourself for whatever you're going to do next or what you're in the middle of? My point to all this is you have to understand your environment, ultimately, and that should drive what you read. So if you know that you're trying to transform the 82nd Airborne Division, right, so that we can deploy out of a known strategic hub and still enable, give options to senior leaders to accomplish strategic and operational surprise in some form and maintain tactical surprise, I should probably understand the environment of how do you do something like that. So reading stuff about what is going on and just what our adversaries are doing, what social media is doing, tail watchers, everybody else to make sure that we can get out of here without people understanding what we're trying to do. Because you're not going to hide the fact we're deploying. Okay, you, but how do you confuse people? So what do you read for that? How do you understand your environment? What do you read? All those things are so important. And that's just one example. But reading is hugely important. Um, I can never emphasize that enough, but it has to be for a purpose. What are a couple of books that you've read throughout your career that kind of just come to mind right now when you're thinking about those ones that have really helped you either understand a problem or better see the environment for what it is? Um, I think it depends at what level you're at, right? And I think for junior leaders, um, you know, I'm a, I knew Dick Winters pretty well, but I'm pretty biased towards Band of Brothers for junior leaders. And it's not for the reasons everybody usually thinks about, hey, Dick Winters and the rest of those guys, they were phenomenal. Because there were a lot of phenomenal companies in the 82nd, the 101st, across our army, right? But it talks about the true human dimension, what it was really like, you know, Sobel's a great example. Lieutenant Winters and Captain Sobel did not like each other. Okay. The company did not particularly like Captain Sobel. But as you, as I I had the opportunity on many occasions to talk to them, they all would tell you though, Sobel made that company. Okay. And it's just understanding the dynamics of, of what are out there. I think at that level, common sense training, right? Again, process, process, process. If you look at what college coaches, NFL coaches do to prepare their teams, I only wish the U.S. military could be as good as them. You know, talk about how, how well they prepare and take those lessons and bring it back to the U.S. military. We have it. We just have to execute it better. And then again, at each level, what are you reading to understand stuff? What are a couple of books you're, you're reading now? So one of the a really good book I just uh finish was the engineers of victory, which took several key areas from World War II that we had to understand the problem, change while in contact with the enemy to achieve tactical, operational, and strategic things. As an example, how did we get, if you look at the the war, you know, in the Atlantic, the battle of the Atlantic, how did we get all of our supplies to the United Kingdom so that we could get onto the continental shelf and defeat Germany? Everything that we did for that, fascinating, by the way, directly related to what we're trying to do right now. Different, 
but it puts you in that right mind, that right mind frame to change, to understand where you have to get to. You know, a friend of mine told me to read 2034. And, uh, you know, that, that was a pretty interesting read only from the optic of, uh, and, you know, and if you download it in your Kindle, it's always interesting where people highlight stuff because it tells you, as you know. But this ability to imagine where you need to go, to imagine how your adversary looks at you. But again, that goes back to the 9-11 Commission, failure to imagine. And we're at that point. So just I think those things that kind of balance back and forth to solving a specific problem understanding, again, how much we have to imagine a new way of doing business and combining all that together. In closing, I have to ask you, as the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, why is it the time now for folks to come and join the division? So the first thing is, is one, it's just the history and the legacy of what everyone is. There is no rank in the LGOP. The expectations here is that everyone can perform. We don't care if you've ever served in the 82nd, or if you have served in the 82nd, we want people who cannot wait to be in this division for all the reasons I'm about ready to mention. The first is the patch chart is going away. We are always on the patch chart. It's called the IRF-1 capability, okay? Anywhere in the world, division capability, IR, you know, an IBCT, Devardi, soon an MFATF, a multifunctional aviation task force. We are permanently on the patch chart. And that is, that is a great reason to come to this division. The other one is, like we mentioned, we're an Army in transition. What this division is doing to transform how we're going to fight from the division level, from Project Convergence 21, all the way down to all the things we're testing, we are getting all the capability to truly transform the way the Army needs to. And again, I just go back to our people are a national treasure. How many people are willing to jump out of an airplane with you have absolutely no idea who packed your parachute? You probably won't know who that jump master is, but you're willing to go anywhere in the world in 18 hours and jump anywhere, air, land, however you're going to get there, and trust each other to do that. That is why it's incredible to be in this division. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. This is a great interview. I think as we were talking before we got started, it's my first in-person interview, especially as we started the podcast in the middle of COVID. So I really appreciate you making time today to talk to me and for the, the From the Green Notebook listeners. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching from the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I Shoot me down soon